Hi, welcome to this fresh teaching from Foundation Church Belfast. My name is David. I'm the pastor of Foundation Church and we are returning to our study here in the book of Ezra um, in the Old Testament. We've called it Restoration because it charts God's restoring plan, his restoring power as he takes uh, his people from exile. They're in exile in Babylon for many years and they return back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and restart worship once again and we're, we're, we're learning from this and we're seeing if God can do this if he can uh, restore worship in this way and if he shows his power in this way then then he can maybe he can do that for us too uh, and so we've been stirred we've been encouraged we've been challenged so far and today uh, we're going to continue in that study and we're looking together at Ezra chapter 6 particularly focusing on verses 13 through to verses 22, Ezra chapter 6. So if you want to um, hit pause on the video just now and read those verses, the link will be below this video in, in the video notes or up on the screen. Just hit pause and read Ezra 6, 13 to 22. And, and the theme that we are looking at today um, in this restoration project is joy. There, there is so much joy um, that erupts as we see and as we consider these verses together. Um, joy is something that we desperately need. I desperately need a fresh uh, injection of joy. I need to discover deeper roots of joy. Um, it was so much uh, panic at the moment, so much fear, uh, uncertainty, I suppose. And, and, and joy is, is the antidote to much of that. Uh, not just with the, the concerns about the virus and about COVID and all that, um, but, but we need joy um, in our interactions with one another, you know, people use the word toxic. There's a lot of toxicity uh, in terms of people's interactions now uh, politically or in social media and all that. It's just toxic. How much do we need joy? How much do I need joy? How much do you need joy to be people of joy who, who live out joy and, and share joy and spread joy rather than toxicity, rather than fear? We need joy. And this shows us uh, today um, how do we get that joy? So why, why, why uh, are they joyful? We're going to ask first of all. Secondly, where does that joy come from? And thirdly, how do we access that? These are, these are three factors that we're going to look at today about discovering deep joy. So first of all, why are they uh, joyful? And we're going to look in this, in this particular part of the video um, and, and understand that joy, number one, is founded on God's decree. Joy is founded on God's decree. When you, when you read these verses... Uh, you'll realize that they, uh, the people of Israel, this first wave of the returning exiles, have finally completed the temple. It took them years. And today, in this text, we see they have completed it. It's a momentous phase in this, in this part of restoration. They've gone through so much obstruction, so much opposition. The enemies tried to subvert them many times. They, they dragged the case on and on and on, took them through the law courts appeal systems, all that, everything they could think of to try and put the brakes on. Um, and we've seen that over the last few studies that we've done together. But here, the people have finished. They have succeeded and they are filled with joy. And it tells us in verse 14, they were led by the, the elders, you know, uh, leading and working hard by example. It says they were stirred by the, the, the prophecies of, of Zechariah. And Haggai and Tim uh, showed us about that last week. And, and here we see the word of God, you know, uh, the encouragement uh, of the prophets, pushing the people on, firing them up. 
and they get the job done. They are finished and we see here an eruption of these great celebrations. And in verse 16, uh, it tells us that they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They celebrated with joy. It just sounds so good. And so we're going to ask ourselves, where, where did this joy come from? Upon which, upon what was it founded? Where did it begin? Because if we understand this, then we can start to see how that might apply to our own lives when we understand where that joy came from. Now look, we don't want to simply say, well, they're only joyful because they finished their project. Effectively, they're only joyful because there was a box and they ticked it. That provoked joy. That is, that is not going deep enough. That is not going far enough. That is just a, a superficial gladness, I suppose, of, you know, rightly so, of, of a finished job. And that's good. But it goes, it goes further. It goes further than that. So we're going to look together for the underlying reasons. Where did that joy come from? And it tells us in verse 14, the second half of verse 14 of Ezra 6, they finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. By the decree of the God of Israel. That was the thing that underpinned their joy. God decreed it and it happened. And that thing provoked joy. Yes, they had to work hard. And yes, it was pleasure and satisfying to see the job done. Yes, there was decrees of the political leaders of their time, of, of King Cyrus and King Darius and King Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. Yes, there was breakthrough. Yes, there was victory. Wonderful. But the ultimate source of their joy took them even deeper. They knew that behind it all, behind the earthly kings, behind the political wheels turning eventually, behind the bureaucracy being finally uh, cut down, their ultimate joy, the people's ultimate joy, was in the fact that their God, the God of Israel, who not only called them uh, to return from slavery or from, from exile to return to Jerusalem, that God who made those promises and said, I will restore worship, I will use you, he did it. And that is where their joy came from. Our God has done it. He's done it as he promised and he has used us to do it. And so, listen, if you want to understand and receive deep joy, you have to first of all grasp, we have to first of all grasp that joy is founded, it is based on God's decree. Now that might be slightly different to what you were expecting me to say. First of all, what, what is a decree? Uh, just in case, you know, just to get language straight here. A decree uh, is, is a command. It is, it is the unbreakable word of a king. Um, a king will, or a queen, uh, those in charge will issue a declaration. And what I have said shall come to pass. That is the declaration of the king. And usually, you know, in, in human terms, the king or the queen or whoever's in charge, the president will, will issue a declaration. And then people, his, his or her subjects will go off and um, enact that will and make sure it is done. But the point is that the decree is that which comes from the king. I have spoken, it shall be. That's how a decree works. You know, we, we make plans all the time, don't we? Um, some day-to-day -day plans. What am I going to do this afternoon? What am I going to do tomorrow? I, like, I'm, I don't know about you, I like writing lists. I like checking off my lists so that I can make the most of a day or, or a week or something. I'm, I love lists. Uh, maybe you like to make things up as you... As you Go along, you strange people. Uh, I love lists anyway. 
but you know what? Sometimes we make plans for things further on in life as well. We make, particularly in the younger stages of life, we, we, we make plans uh, that are going to affect us for many years or decades or, uh, as we think, affect our life, uh, the rest of our life as, as, as how, it, how it turns out. Uh, in fact, I, I was walking along talking with a young guy um, not so long ago who was telling me about his plans and how he wants to go and do this and do that. And after we've done that, then we'll go here. And I, I was able to just say, like, you know what, from my experience, I used to think like that uh, when I was a young, younger adult. And um, I realized that I need to, you know, make, make plans, but hold them with an open hand. Don't be so uh, focused on them. Uh, being completely the way I interpret because uh, I found out to my own um, experience that my plans that I made when I was 18 or 20 or 25 didn't work out anywhere near how I thought they would do. I'm not saying that things went badly for me. Far from it. Things were much better. But there was a lot of detours and U-turns and right angles that I took. Um, and so my own plans don't always come good. There are things outside of my control and your control too. But not so with God. This is what I'm getting at. Not so with God. He speaks a word and it is done. That is his decree. His word always comes to pass. When he says something, it is always done. There is, there is no ifs or buts about it. That is God's decree. Maybe uh, that to you sounds a bit oppressive. Um, you may not want to live your life uh, under or respecting, if you like, the authority of the God of the Bible who makes decrees and he says things and it is done. But don't forget for, for a second that when, particularly when we're thinking of God's decree, um, it flows out of God's character, who he is. And so the God who makes a decree is the same God who reveals himself in the Bible. He is, he is light itself. He is, he is love. He is the definition of holiness and perfection. Uh, the God who makes decrees is the good father. Uh, he, he is beautiful. He is glorious. He is powerful. He is the creator. He is the loving Lord who gave his only son uh, to win his people back to himself. This is the God who makes the decree. He brings all things about to his perfect will. Uh, his, his perfect plans always come to pass. His creation, his, his act of recreation, his restoration of the world, including us. We cannot separate the God who makes decrees from the decree itself. And so what has God decreed, you might be asking? What has God decreed? How is this in any way related to me? Well, dotted throughout scripture are promises of God, decrees that God gives, if you like. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has decreed that, which means it will happen. Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has decreed that that will happen and that shall happen. Uh, he has said that he who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That is a decree. It shall happen. He has said that the, the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth 
like the waters cover the sea. That is a decree. That shall happen. That one day the whole entire world will be filled with the knowledge, the personal heart knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That shall happen. He's decreed it. He's decreed this. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is a decree. And that shall come to pass. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. How does this all connect to our joy? What has this got to do with, with joy as we're starting to learn? The Heidelberg Catechism. Um, it's a wonderful old uh, formulation of the core teachings of the Christian faith. It says this in question and answer 28. Question, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence, his decree, help us here's the answer listen to this we can be patient when things go against us thankful when things go well and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful god and father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love for all creatures are so completely in god's hands that without his will they can neither move nor be moved Heidelberg Catechism, question answer 28. How is this good for us? How does this help our joy? It says that when things go bad or work against us or in forms of opposition, we can be patient when things go against us because we know God's decrees and God's decrees always come about. Because we know that even when things go against us, we can be patient because we know that God's got this. I don't understand what's happening just now. I don't see how this is, is ultimately going to be for my good and for his glory. But I do know that God has decreed wonderful things. God's got this. I don't got this. But I will be still. I, I will wait on him. I will trust him. I will have hope because of what he has promised. This is one of the things that comes when we understand God's decree. What about this? It also says in that catechism that we can be thankful when things go well. We can be patient when they go badly, thankful when things go well. Why thankful? Because ultimately we know that God has done this because he has ultimately decreed. And it protects us against pride uh, or arrogance, thinking I have somehow earned this, I have performed this, I have put this up, I have completed this. No, no, no. We, we, we look at the, the basis of God's decree and we say God has decreed. All things come together for the good of those who love him. God has decreed that. God's got me. He's got me. And even more, as it goes on to say, in the future, we can have confidence and hope because nothing will separate us from God's love. God's got me. Nothing will separate, nothing will distract, nothing will disrupt, nothing will tear us away from God's love. You see, joy is founded upon God's decree. I wonder if there's any areas in your life where you are carrying a deep fear or an anxiety or a worry. There's, there's something that keeps you up at night, perhaps, or something that, that constantly uh, occupies your mind and your, 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 your discussion, your thought, your conversation. I wonder if you just need to hit pause on that for a few moments and, and allow the the... The firmness and the certainty of God's decree 
for you to to enter into to enter into your heart and your mind and to, to push out that fear and to push out the anxiety and the worry and the concerns instead to be saying God's got me he has decreed that he will never leave me or forsake me he has decreed that he who began a good work in me will carry it on there's nothing that can separate me from his love he's got me I don't understand this current circumstance I am it, I am worried about it but God's got me God's got me. And the more we meditate on that, the more it is likely to produce or more it will start to produce joy. Because there is something greater, something deeper, something richer that you can plant your life upon rather than the circumstances of our lives. So the second thing we see then in this text is that joy is received through participation. Uh, joy is founded on God's decree. What he has said will happen, and that's that the basis, that's the rock that we build out on. But joy is received through participation. What are we talking about? Well, in, in this uh, passage, they are full of celebration, they are full of joy. Um, but one of the clear things that comes out is that they are preparing themselves to participate in a ceremony, in a, in a worship service, if you like. Um, the focus in the early verses uh, is on cleansing, preparing themselves ceremonially. Um, first of all, it says in verse 17, they offered uh, sin offerings um, for each of the 12 tribes to represent uh, the, the, their sin and to bring that before God and admit it and to, to you know, have, a, have a, a, a goat killed in their place as a sin offering to God. Um, in, in verse 20, it says the priests and the Levites purify themselves. You know, all of them were clean, ceremonially preparing themselves for this, uh, this, this festival. <clears throat> Goes on to say that whether there is a priest or a Levite, um, a return, one of the returned exiles or even a convert to uh, the community of faith, all people had to be clean. They had to be ceremonially prepared to participate in this great festival. What is that festival? Uh, that's the sort of the centerpiece, the crowning joy that everybody was partaking of. Uh, it was the festival of Passover. The festival of Passover. Everybody was filled with joy when they were participating in Passover. What is Passover? Uh, just a bit of background if you're unfamiliar with the term Passover. The the, the the celebration of Passover, uh, the festival was an annual festival um, that pointed back to the time when the, the angel of death passed over the Israelite families when they were enslaved in Egypt. This was hundreds of years earlier. The background is this. Um, the Israelites uh, were, were enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. They were oppressed. They were mistreated. Uh, they were slaves, they were trapped, and then God uh, raised up Moses to deliver his people, to lead them out from oppression uh, by delivering a message to Pharaoh from God. And the message was this, from God, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, I will not do that. And so um, as a result, God sent various plagues upon the Egyptians in order to turn their hearts um, to change their minds and to let the people go. 
And of course, this happened time and again, whether it's the plague of frogs or the plague of locusts or the river turning blood red. They, they kept on resisting, refusing. And so eventually, the final plague, death of the firstborn of all people. Um, the angel of death passed over. And yet God said, you can be safe from the angel of death if you do this. Um, if you take a lamb, if you kill it, drain its blood and, and put its blood on the doorposts and on the door frame outside your house, everybody who is inside will be saved. There will be no loss of life if you do that, if you partake. If you do not do that, the firstborn of every family, the firstborn son of every family will, will die. The angel of death will sweep through. And so we see it. Uh, the angel of death swept through. Um, at that time, those inside the house that was protected by the blood of the lamb, they not only put the blood on the, on the doorposts, but they were to cook the lamb. They were to eat it. They were to, re you know, God was feeding them, preparing them to leave slavery. There they were. They, they were to eat it dressed and ready to go with their bags ready um, in, a, in a sort of posture of readiness and, and expectation. And then the, the angel of death swept through the entire country and it says the great sorrow, great mourning arose when they realized that the firstborn of every person who was not protected by the blood had been killed by the angel of death very grisly. But that's what happened. And so the people were eventually driven out. They were probably half kicked out. Go, get out. You're too much trouble. They were driven out. They were released uh, to go and make their way back to the promised land. And so Passover was instituted as a yearly memorial to remember God's saving work, uh, his redeeming work, letting his people out of slavery, setting them free, his power, his grace, uh, to remind them, though, of the protection that the people received when the blood of the Lamb covered them. And so how does this play out for us? How does this play out for us? How is this connected to our joy, the fact that they were celebrating Passover here. Well, we need to understand that joy is received through participation. We, we today are not given a, a, a complex series of purification rites and rituals um, as New Testament believers, this side, the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. But we still have a requirement for us to be ceremonially clean, uh, to be purified so that we can receive, we can partake um, in, the, in the festival, in the blessing of restoration, to receive the joy of restoration. But to do that, we don't have to go through these Old Testament, we're not required to go through these Old Testament rituals in the way that the people of Israel were here in Ezra chapter 6. The reason is this, these sacrifices and rituals were a shadow of the true sacrifice, the true cleansing that will come. They, they foreshadowed, they pointed forward to the real sacrifice, the real lamb, which is Jesus himself. John the Baptist said when Jesus was on the scene at the start of Jesus' public earthly ministry, John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. John knew that 
the Passover lamb that protected the people when its blood was on them was a foreshadowing of, of Jesus, the real Passover lamb. And so here's the gospel. Here is the good news at the center of the Christian faith. Just as the blood of the lamb smeared on the Israelites' doors protected those inside from death and judgment, so much more does the blood of Jesus Christ, the real Passover lamb, protect, save, deliver those who cling to him by faith. Not only does Jesus work on the cross, cleanse and, and, and forgive, provide forgiveness, but it also delivers his people from death to life, from being slaves to darkness to being servants of God, sons and daughters. Those who come to faith in Jesus are protected, they are shielded, they are restored. Uh, an old hymn was written in 1722 by a guy called William Cowper. And the title of the hymn is, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, which sounds very unusual, quite grotesque, it could be said. Some people indeed find this talk of blood and, and, and uh, certainly the, the, the amount of bloodshed, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, very um, offensive and, uh, and, and gruesome. And indeed it is, particularly to our sanitized Western minds. So why would someone like William Cowper in 1722 write a song about blood? There is a fountain filled with blood, not a fountain I would like to go and visit on my holidays, that's for sure. But he wrote that because he understands, he understood what Christ has done. He understood that joy is received through participation and participation in the blood of Christ. He said this, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, that is Jesus' veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Sinners plunged. I mean, in what way does that make sense that someone plunged into blood lose all their stains? It's true in a metaphorical sense, of course. It's true in a spiritual sense, but it is real. It is the promise of the gospel that because of the, the blood of Jesus that he spilt when he gave himself on the cross for his people, a blood which is infinitely more powerful than the blood of a lamb, which was, was just a temporary sacrifice. When you understand that and you realize what it does to you, then you will be filled with joy. These are the words of someone who has understood the blood of Christ. He's, he, William Cowper was not a, a passive onlooker, um, but he is someone who has received the benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus. So when you see what Christ has done, the real Passover lamb, when you, when, you, when you see the effect of his blood, the shedding of his blood for you, then you will experience joy when you understand that you are completely cleansed, completely washed, freed from guilt, forgiven, 
redeemed, restored, eternally protected, set free. The love of the Father is placed upon you because of the extent, the power of that sacrifice of Jesus. When you understand that that's for you, then that will erupt in joy. When you partake of that, when you participate in that by faith in Jesus, it is yours through faith. It will evoke joy. It will be a source of joy in your life. So we've seen, first of all, how our joy is based on or founded upon God's decree. What God has said will happen. And he has said some wonderful things, some remarkable things. I will redeem you. I will carry you through. I will be your God. What he has said will come to pass. We can build out our joy in that. That will give us power and joy and hope in the times when when there are challenges and difficulties in life, as we've been thinking. Secondly, we've seen that our joy is received through participation, through faith in Jesus, um, faith in what he has done for us. He is the true Passover lamb. He is the one that the, the original Passover lambs were pointing forward to. They were temporary. His sacrifice is eternal, is complete, and is powerful. And thirdly, then, we're going to see that, that joy is therefore expressed in wholehearted worship. Yes, joy is something you can enjoy on your own. It is something that you will uh, experience, wonderful, but it will erupt, it goes further because joy is so powerful um, that it's not something you keep uh, to yourself. You can't keep it to yourself. It is something you, you must share. You must infect other people with. And, and, and uh, we do that through gathered worship, through times together of joy, wholehearted worship. And we see the community here in Ezra 6 doing exactly that. It says in verse 16, for example, um, when they dedicated the house of God, they did it, dedicated it with great joy. Joy was, was just in the air. It was, it was permeating the community. Later on, after Passover finished, they, they said in verse 22, they kept the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with joy, for the Lord God had made them joyful. The feast of unleavened bread, by the way, was, was to mark the quickness with which that first generation left Egypt. They were slaves, as we've seen. Uh, Passover happened, um, and they were removed from Egypt uh, in the middle of the night. They didn't even have time to finish their bread. They had to take what they had, and they, the bread was unleavened. It didn't have yeast in it. It didn't have leaven in it. And so after Passover, traditionally then, um, the, the seven-day festival of, of unleavened bread began. And they ate bread without yeast in it uh, to, to re, re, again, enjoy and be reminded and, and marvel at God's redemption. And um, this was a national holiday for seven days. And again, we see here just joy uh, in the air. The, the, just imagine the, the, the buzz, uh, the enthusiasm, the energy, either in the towns and villages where the people were or, or probably more likely centrally as they were gathered in the, the capital in Jerusalem and particularly around the 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 temple just that hushed buzz that sense of joy look at what god has done and you see joy is expressed in wholehearted worship brimming with joy celebrations not in the signs themselves or or the the fact that we're eating bread without yeast in it that wasn't the thing that was making them joyful it was what that sign pointed to it was the goodness of God. It was that his decree is being worked out, that it is true, that we can build our lives on it. That is what stirred them to joy, wholehearted worship. 
You know, at Foundation Church Belfast, we, we seek to be wholehearted and full of joy when we gather together. We want our, our, our times of worship to be authentic and to be transformational. And we see that most chiefly on a, on a Sunday. It's not the only time that we gather together. Um, we do that through the week as well, but we do it chiefly on a Sunday. It is the, the rally cry. It is the central gathering. Um, obviously, we haven't been doing that since um, March because of lockdown and, and prohibition over uh, meeting together in larger numbers. Um, but we've been doing this from the get-go, from the beginning of Foundation Church over three years ago until now. Authentic, joy-filled um, worship, times of worship. But it, within that, and if you've ever been with us over that time, you'll know that with, with those moments of joy and enthusiasm, there's also a, an amount of ordinariness, um, an amount of ordinariness in what we do. There's a, there's a routine. And there's a reason for that. Um, we are using the gifts that God gives us that he says, when you get together, this is how it should be. And, and so every week there's a routine. There's a, you know, people call it liturgy. And there's a flow, there's a format that we open the Bible, we read it, we teach from it, we sing together, um, we pray. All these things happen. We, we, you know, we have coffee. That's not in the Bible, but fellowship, encouraging one another takes place over coffee. That's, the coffee's there just to help that. Um, we do these things and it's, it, it, is, it is lovely. It is, it is familiar. It is warming. And, and yet that is the place. We, we meet in a school. We meet in Ashfield Girls High School, a wonderful venue, very easy to get to, great parking, there's a great space. But at the end of the day, it's a school. And, and we do our best to make it look as attractive uh, as we can and, and um, to take away anything that's going to sort of um, distract you uh, from what we're saying and doing and singing. But at the end of the day, everything that we bring out and try and beautify the place with goes back in the box. Uh, there's an ordinariness to what we do. And yet our joy is not based in the lighting or in the production value or in the quality of this, that or the other. Although we do try, they are important. We do want nice coffee and good music and you know, good, good production levels, if you want to call it like that. But that is not what our joy is in. That is not what our joy is in. Our joy is in what these things facilitate, They're in what we talk about. It is in the message it is in the good news of, of Jesus. It is in the decrees of God and they are good and they are right. That is where our joy comes from. It is in the word of God as, as God speaks to us and we listen to his voice, his living and active voice speaking to us through the scriptures. As his spirit works among us, stirring us, filling us with joy, motivating us, empowering us for service we will know that God is truly among us. These are the things that stir us with joy and that erupts in our wholehearted worship to God. I wonder, as you're listening to this, and especially if you're one of our regulars at Foundation Church, how are your joy levels at this moment? I mean, even on a scale of 1 to 10, could you quantify them with 1 being almost non-existent joy and 10 being mountaintop experiences of God's joy and intimacy. Wherever you are on that scale, there's always room for more, right? God is not done with you yet. There's always room for more. There's always progress that we can make by his grace. Do you want more joy? I do. I do. Here's how to get more joy. We've seen this. This is a summary. Look closely 
at God. His character, his decree, his perfect will for his people, flowing from his impeccable, his perfect love. Investigate that, examine that, meditate on that. That will stir joy within your heart. That decree that includes your restoration into the image of Christ. Think of those things. Do you want more joy? Then see the grounds of your joy. Look more closely at how God achieves his decrees, how he actions it through the blood of the Lamb, through giving his Son, Jesus Christ, in your place and for your benefit. Look at the old Passover. Look at, look at what he does to deliver you through his Son, Jesus Christ, the real Passover Lamb. Meditate on that. Chew on that. Take that in. Sing that out. That will stir joy within your heart. It absolutely will. And you see, when you are stirred by these things, you will be moved to wholehearted worship. You'll be moved to wholehearted worship. We've, we've touched on worship over the last few weeks because it's so prominent in our studies through the book of Ezra. Like eating the bread and the wine and reading God's word. We've been talking about that. But I wonder, are you expressing joy through your worship? Whether it is worship at home with your family, worship personally as you commune with God through his word and prayer, worship as we gather together. Are, are you defined by worship? Is your worship defined by joy? Is it a distinct flavor about you? When you understand God's decree and participate in his redemption, then you will be provoked to wholehearted worship. It'll transform what you do and how you react when we gather back together again, permeated with joy. Of course, worship isn't just singing, certainly not. It's the whole gathering, but it's also not even that. Worship affects all of life. And so the more you see God's decree, the more you participate in his redemption for you and receive it, through faith in Jesus, then your wholehearted worship, your joy-filled worship will permeate all of life. Worship gathered, worship scattered. You will do all things out of worship for God, out of thanks for him, to the glory of God, not with dr grudging feet, dragging of heels, not with a sense of glumness or I've just got to push through this, but a, a sense of joy for what God has done for you. Think about these things. Allow them to circulate in your heart and mind and you will notice that you will be filled more and more with joy through Jesus.